Hi there, and it's great to be here uh, talking to my good friend Hugh MacDonald. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Don. How are you? Very well, very well. You in sunny Bearsden? Sunny Bearsden, in my garret in Bearsden. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great picture. That's a great picture. No doubt you're just in from jogging around the football field. Not quite. I'm going my afternoon exercise will be not quite jogging, but staggering around it, the football field outside, so... <laughs> superb, superb. So here's what would be great to have a, a, a chat about who he is. He initially, you know, how how you got into journalism? Because what I loved, you know, about your your writing and also we've spoke about it before. It's not just on sport, you know, just all the other areas you have an interest in in terms of music and books and and how did you get into that, into the writing and journalism, and then just about the the culture, the change in culture in, in football you've noticed over the years and where it is now, um, because it's a fascinating journey, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would be my... Uh, uh, I got into journalism by mistake, uh, which would be the best way to say <laughs> I, 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 I'd, um, I'd been accepted for university in Edinburgh to do medicine, and uh, uh, I had... Uh, I suddenly realised that I couldn't, not only did I not want to be a doctor, but I couldn't be a doctor. <laughs> and I sort of panicked. Now, I'd always been a reader, <clears throat> and I'd always been a writer. And as a little kid, I would write long stories, and, uh, you know, I'd like doing essays at yeah. school and things like that. And I was a really strong reader. I would read an awful lot. And... There was an interview, there was a, a, there was a little advert in the Evening Times and it said, do you want to become a journalist? And I went, oh yeah. Uh, and so I dived into that and I got accepted. Brilliant. And to give you an idea of how long ago it was, it, nowadays it would be regarded as, it was 48 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 1972. But to give you an idea of how the world was in 1972, this job, they gave you a job as a journalist, Don, as a training oh. journalist, and they sent you to college for a year. Yeah. And they paid all your expenses, all your tuition fees. They gave you money to stay in a flat or digs, and they also paid you a wage. <clears throat> and they said to you that if after a year you you um, you passed all your exams, they would give you a job uh, in, in the local newspapers. So it was really a sort it's of... incredible. <clears throat> incredible. It was like um, a free free education plus guaranteed job. So that was it. That was the short answer oh. to how I got into it. Um, people now, I suppose, would know me, if anybody does know me, they would know me as a sports journalist. Yeah. But I only really got into sports journalism when I was 50. Right. Uh, which is uh, 14 years ago. Before that, I was... Um, obviously a reporter, and then I became a sub-editor, and uh, I became the chief sub-editor of the Herald at a young age, and uh, a very young age, in my middle 20s. Uh, Eventually kind of like burned out (laughs) uh, in that, and and gave that up for, you know, really health reasons, you know, I was completely burnt out, stressed out, uh, and then kind of reinvented myself, I suppose, as literary editor of the Herald, yeah, and uh, and then went on. Uh, after that, I went on to do sport because I'd always been 
that's a, a very long answer, but I'd always been very interested in sport, Don, and yeah. uh, loved sports writing and had dabbled in sports writing. And the chance of the job in the Herald came up as chief sports writer. Uh, my marriage <clears throat> had been finished. My kids were up. And it was, seemed like a great opportunity. I could go on the road then without... Yeah. In, in those days, we'll, we'll go on and talk about journalism changed. But even 14 years ago, much of your life as a sports journalist was spent on the road. Yeah. Not so much now because of budget constraints. So you were on the road, whether it be tennis, golf, football, um, tennis, and tennis and football were the big ones, you know, with Andy Murray. So that's the that's the a long answer to a short question. Oh no, it's a great <clears throat> answer. I remember because I was laughing, and it must have been, and I've, I've mentioned this to you. I must have been a couple of years ago now, and you were talking about it was someone, it was someone like Alice Cooper, and you uh -huh. said they were that good when they played in Glasgow. You decided to uh, stay for the encore. Uh -huh. No, it meant walking through the gorbals when you had missed the last bass. Ah, yeah, it was Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. And we, <laughs> and we came to, uh, my brother and I came to a, 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 a decision where we were standing both of us. My brother's only a year and a bit younger than me, yeah. so he's really, really close. We, he's a very good football player, so we'd play in the same football teams together, etc. Yeah. He's only a year below me at school, so he's very close to me. So we'd go to concerts together. And we're standing there in those days. It was a Sunday night, and the last bus out of you know Anderson out to Busby where we stayed yeah. was half ten. And we said, you know, it was come up to the encore, and Roddy and I looked at each other and went, "Well, what are we going to do?" And he says, "Well, just walk home." Now that may not seem such a it would be six or seven miles, but that yeah. might not mean so much nowadays. Young kids, yeah, well, but the gang culture then, we're talking about yeah. 70s, the gang culture in Glasgow was so strong that you actually, it was inevitable that you would get confronted walking yeah. through uh, gobbles, as we did. Yeah. But uh, what we did was when we were walking from the city centre over into the gobbles, we uh, maintained enough in our legs, shall we say, that we were able to sprint at the proper time, and sprint is what we did coming up past what is now the Brazen Head pub. Oh, yeah. So we sprinted from there, you know, all the way up to Victoria Road and managed to shake them off. Oh, incredible story. It's, it's, it's funny. I was speaking to a friend of mine last week and I, he was recounting the time I was visiting uh, in Los Angeles and we went to watch LA Galaxy uh -huh. in the, the Home Depot Stadium, the Hebrew Depot Stadium. And two chukters and Lauren was staying in Los Angeles and we took the... the the wrong turning out of the stadium. And I always remember we came into and seen a sign saying, welcome to Compton. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lord said to me, whatever you do, don't wind down that window. <laughs> and he went, last week he said to me, there's the film, get out of Compton. And uh, he actually went, get into Compton. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love, I love that story. So that shows you how good Led Zeppelin were. Yes. Uh... Oh. So what? let's talk about football. Mm -hmm. So you've seen it there. And, and what do you think the changes in, how do the changes in society, you know, we're talking about Scotland in particular mm -hmm. from where we're from. How do you think the changes in society in particular is with the change in the industrial makeup of the country? Do you, or do you think that has reflected in the coaching, you know, the coach's approach to the team and the dressing room? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
I've watched it out the other day, the Don. I've watched football in eight different decades. Eight different God. decades I've watched, you know, mm-hmm. from the 50s through to the 20s now. Uh, and the biggest change I've saw uh, is there's two changes. One is the acceptance of football by, uh, by classes above the working class. Mm. And by that, I mean, when I was chief sub of the Herald in the 1970s, it would be in editorial conference. Uh, football would just not be discussed at all. It yeah. was the sports editor would hang at the door and sort of contribute uh, very, very little, <clears throat> excuse me, to the, the to the, the conference. People just, they didn't think it was, <clears throat> well, put it this way, the sports desk in most papers was called the toy department. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't considered central to uh, what the paper was about. Of course, yeah. nowadays it's completely and utterly central. Yeah. Because it's what sells newspapers, what it's what gets hits on the internet. Yeah. If you start to look at uh, any uh, list of newspapers are most commented, most commented about or most read, football will be hugely. Mm. You know, they'll even be battling for with coronavirus at the mm. moment. You know, the the high jinks about the SPFL vote will be knocking yeah. the, the. So that's one element. The yeah. second element, which is kind of related to that, <clears throat> uh, which is that the, the, the middle classes then, which the Herald hierarchy would be not interested in full. The middle classes uh, have, you know, really infiltrated, you know, quite strongly yeah. into um, in football. And the, the working classes are now, unfortunately, what we must call the non-working classes. Yeah. Have been uh, really disenfranchised by football because of football for a variety of reasons. Uh, but one of the reasons being football is, you know, now quite can be an expensive yeah. game to play. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to pay for coaching or kit. Uh, there's also <clears throat> amongst uh, the disadvantages, there's maybe a lack of motivation and opportunity. Yeah. <clears throat> or inspiration to go into sport. So what you're finding, you know, and I found very dramatically in my sports writing career, was you're starting to interview middle-class kids mm. instead of working-class yeah. kids. Yeah. Quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. And, and people used to remark, and I always remember, you know, Stuart Armstrong when he was very young in, 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 in Dundee United, it might have been, I think it might have been before a, a semi-final. I think it was a big high-profile semi-final against Rangers. He was put up to the press, and there was almost a sort of gasp amongst the press about right. this yeah. kid was coming out with. Because yeah. even then, he was talking about, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my studies to be a lawyer. I'm doing, you know, blah-de-blah. And yeah. you're going, oh, right, this is not a guy that's... This is a guy that's got a real life outside football. Football's like being a choice for him in many ways. Whereas in in my, uh, I mean, my existence is that football was a, amongst the working class, football wasn't, it was just mandatory. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely mandatory. It's what, it's what, it might be hard for people to realise now. I mean, we go through this kind of, misty-eyed stuff, but all the misty-eyed stuff's true. I mean, you know, there was three brothers, we had five kids in the house, yeah. and I see back now that, you know, we were really not encouraged to go out, but just 
forced out the door. The door yeah. was on you. Your mum didn't have the room or the, yeah. the resources to have you in that. So you would go out, especially in summer holidays. I can remember. I mean, it's a different world, but it was a thing of going out at nine o'clock in the morning and come back at ten yeah. o'clock at night. Yeah. Yeah, and it's incredible that I've spoken last the last couple of, well, the last week to you know two famous ex players who are now in in the coaching world. You know, mm -hmm. Kevin Thompson, Juan, and, and and John Collins, and both have spoken about, and we've all experienced this as you were talking about that the formative years of playing on the street with your mates or playing you know in the school park and. Before you know it, you're playing for hours and hours, and the, the game only stops because your your mom shouts you in. You that, know? Yeah, and, and the other thing about it is is the way that, that playing on a <clears throat> very rudimentary surfaces, mm. if not on the street, then on park areas which weren't really made for football. There, there yeah. may be like the you know like steep hills, maybe a tree yeah. in the middle, and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> around and and. and <laughs> And literally the old cliche jumpers for goal, goal yeah. Also, in my very early years, uh, I mean, this is but this is sixty years ago. I'm talking about the 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 uh, in school, particularly in primary school, you couldn't play with a ball because they wouldn't let you, you know, play with a ball because you'd smash windows. Yeah, so there was a Johnny wrapping up paper, and you were playing with, you know, the paper ball. Yeah. Which would disintegrate at times, and 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 he, but a lot of the reason for it was there just was nothing else, you yeah. know. I, I always remember um, interviewing. I had to go down to Largs to interview Ben Ainsley, the great yeah. yachtsman. Yeah, and he, very interested in his story, and it was under fourteen World Championships for laser boats, mm -hmm. and laser boats for those who don't know about it, are very very small dinghies, you know, very fast and small dinghies and Ben Ainsley said to me do you want to go on it and I went it was Mark's Harbour I said oh I'd love that so I went out with this 14 year old girl maybe younger 12 year old girl and she zipped me around uh, Lars Harbour and she's very proficient you know it's obviously a little championship she was good and it was fantastic it was fantastic and I came out of the boat I was done I was exhilarated I was yeah. exhilarated and, and, and Ainsley saw this in my face and I said what do you think about it he said, I'd love to have done that as a kid. I said, yeah. see if I'd done that as a kid, Ben. I said, I would have, I don't know if I'd have done anything else. Yeah. It was just, it was just fantastic. Yeah. And he said, well, why didn't you do it as a kid? Yeah. And I said, well, Hossel and Milton Yachting Club, <laughs> I said, had really strict <laughs> restrictions on membership. And he said, oh, yes, a lot of yachting clubs are like that, you know. And he just didn't get a reference, you know. <laughs> But, you know, that kind of thing that was just yeah. outside your frame. Yeah. And I yeah. always think about a wee mate of mine called uh, Pat Houston, who's a remarkable wee guy. He's now in he's got his own English language school yeah. in Verona. We went to school together. And Pat would have been called at school a sort of mediocre sportsman because yeah. he wasn't a great football player. He was an yeah. all right football player. Yeah. But every year we used to have this very, very long cross-country. And Pat was a very small thing. Yeah. And we had this very long cross-country. And we're all quite fit kids, you know, mm. playing football. Aye. And Pat would be, we'd end up, I'm not kidding you, we'd end up literally about a mile ahead of us over maybe an eight-mile run. I mean, yeah. he, just, yeah. he just blew everybody away. And everybody in, that, in those days just nodded that. Pat's a good runner. 
But looking back, see, nowadays, yeah. somebody would have taken them and said, well, go to Shettles and Harriers or go yeah. to, you know, go to go here or Scottish Athletics or Sports Scotland yeah. and pick them up and say, yeah. like, you're an elite talent. And, and yeah. you know, I mean, it might be <clears throat> very romantic to say it, but who knows, he could have been an Olympic athlete. Yeah. It could have been. Yeah, I think I think you're so right there, he isn't it? It's the, it's, football is so, you know, and it has been, certainly in the past, so central to, you know, our upbringings huh. and, and what was noticing. And I think on the other thing, and you'll notice, uh, having worked in the media, I always think, and I talk to parents about that, is certainly when I was growing up, you only seen football on the telly. Yeah. On the Saturday night, Wednesday night, the two big games, live mm-hmm. games, only two live games, wasn't it? Scotland, yeah. England, uh-huh. and the cup final. Yeah. But now, 24-7 football. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for me, it's, it's always quite interesting because I think the perception is you can, you, people are always an expert at football mm-hmm. because it's so, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And also the perception that you've made it is almost closer than it actually is. Uh-huh. And through the amount of football that is there, you know, it's everywhere before, everyone strove to, to it. Uh-huh. You know, but it was, it was something really magical, wasn't it? That Scottish yeah, right. Cup final, that, that international. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredible as well because there's, I always remember going to see Maradona would be... Uh, I think I can't remember if it was it was his late seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maradona came to Hamden mm-hmm. and uh, Argentina beat Scotland three mm-hmm. one. And one of the things about that that people don't realise nowadays is that well, you went to football matches to watch players because there was no other way of watching them. Yeah, yeah. Now, if if you want to watch the best player in Argentina, you go to YouTube yeah. or whatever social media. Or and by the way, the best player in Argentina is probably playing for a a European team. So you're mm. seeing him in Champions League. You're seeing yeah. him in his national league. So if you go to Celtic Park, Ibrox, mm. Hamden, or wherever to watch the best player in Argentina, you have a real hinterland of knowledge about. Yeah, him. yeah. You have visually, you know, you have visual evidence. You have mm. written evidence. You have tweets uh-huh. about him. The, in those days, Maradona coming to, to uh, Hamden was like a mythical creature. Yeah. It's hard to explain to people now. Yeah, I, I, There's yeah, no I get YouTube. That. There's no live football. Yeah. You maybe have seen a picture of him. Yeah. Any evidence to his greatness is only written, and it's yeah. written second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand. He, the guy is... So when you go along and you actually see him, you go to him and yeah. say, oh, my God, you know, like, this is yeah. just like, this is just... Fantastic, you know, it was like, and I always remember the greatest memories of football for me is is going along to grounds and, and seeing players and realizing how good they were. Where it be one of the great ones is uh, uh, in 1969, uh, Johnny Rivera and AC Milan came to Celtic Park and they, they won one nothing and they won, won to win the European Cup very closely. They beat Ajax 4 1 in the final, so they were. The best team in Europe, they had real, Celtic were a really good team and they, yeah. they had real trouble with them. But that day in a sort of, you know, really frenetic atmosphere of Celtic Park, Rivera was just amazing. He, he just the way he dictated the rhythm of the game, you know, and, uh, uh, but you would never, 
you know, in live terms, I never saw him again and I never saw him yeah. before. It was yeah. that kind of flashing light that you go, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just that glimpse, isn't it? And I think it's um, that, you know, if, if, if someone's a teenager now playing football, you know, getting a sense of, of what you were describing about how rare it was to mm. see someone, mm. you know, like that world class in the flesh and that magical mm. quality, you know, of a player, you know, it's, it's huh. just the change is incredible. Yeah. What about, you know, we're talking about players there, and I know you've met and interviewed a lot of coaches. Mm. What is the qualities of the very top coaches that you see? The very... The elite coaches have got something that uh, goes beyond any kind of, con you know, uh, restraint about how good they are at the technical coaching, how good they are at uh, man management, how good they are at, you know, strategy, how good they are at problem solving, how good they are at recruitment. They all need that. Don't get me wrong, but they've got yeah. something that's above that. And, 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 and I call it... <laughs> I call it sort of like uh, the best way is the Lou Reed factor. Uh -huh. I'll explain it to you in this way. One of my favourite songs is Coney Island Baby. And there's a line in Coney Island Baby which says, I want to play football for the coach, right? <laughs> now, the great coaches have that. Players players may revile them at times. They, they may uh, fall out of them, may be frustrated with them. They may get angry with them. They may go in a half of them, but they want to impress them. They want to play football for them. They want to... It's almost a patriarchal thing, but it goes beyond that. They yeah. want to impress this figure. Mm. And it's very easily seen, but not probably very easily explained. Like, yeah. if you look at somebody like Alec Ferguson, you know, I'm now in the era where I'm meeting Alec Ferguson um, players who have forged a, a great life beyond football, mm. you know, who are millionaires, like Gary Neville, for yeah. example, yeah. who is a millionaire beyond football, has built up a very impressive hotel business, has obviously built a, an impressive social conscience. Mm. He's, you know, he's one of the top broadcasters on football, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, yet he, if he's talking about Alec Ferguson... We'll be talking about him as the gaffer. He yeah. would never, the words Alec and Ferguson yeah. will never pass his lips. Yeah. So there's this kind of like spiritual guru thing which Ferguson still um, holds in mm. the minds of people he works with. And, and it's not, it, it, it's, it, and it's not something that's linked to the past as well, Don. I would say yeah. Klopp has that. Yeah, yeah. I would say Klopp has that with his players. Yeah. I would have thought at one time, and this is a crucial point, mm -hmm. at one time Mourinho would have it, mm -hmm. but he's probably lost it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think ego has come in there and kind of destroyed that to a certain extent. But you would still talk to some Mourinho players, like I would suspect, uh, like Terry, for example. Yeah. John Terry, Drogba. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe not so much Frank Lampard, given the recent controversies between yeah. the two. But, but a lot of players that worked under Mourinho at Chelsea, for example, certainly all that worked under him at Porto, yeah. would still have that lasting uh, sort of aura about him. Mm. Yeah. 
TFL love that that Lou, Lou Reed factor there, oh. isn't it? And you know, like yourself, I, I've been lucky enough to you know to be in the company or work with some incredible coaches. And there is that. It is. It goes beyond the technical, doesn't oh. it? It goes beyond. While well, they might have, as you mentioned earlier, they might have technical coaches, isn't it? They might yeah. have. Well, the great thing in life is, um, I think the great thing in life is to realise not only what you're good at. Mm. But to realise what you're not great at, that other people or other people can buy in and be open-minded to it. And the greatest power I think anybody ever has is to give power away and be confident in giving power away. Ferguson, for example, I mean, uh, and I keep going back to him, but I think he's this, he, I think he's kind of the lodestone for a mm. lot of this stuff. I think mm. he's this, you know, because I'm not saying it doesn't apply to other managers, mm. but but just using Ferguson as, as the exemplar. I mean, at Manchester United, for example, you look at the number twos he had at Manchester United, Walter Smith, Rennie Willenstein, mm -hmm. Steve McLaren, Carlos Queros, mm -hmm. you know, Mike Phelan, yeah. all who went on to management themselves, none of whom did very well yeah. in management themselves. But all who were fantastic coaches for for Ferguson, and I, and I read a, a very interesting blog by Mullenstein, uh, who you know who's a top class coach, yeah. and he was saying um, that every day he drove into Manchester United um, with a smile on his face yeah. because he knew he was going to have a laugh that day. Brilliant. But more importantly, he said Ferguson delegated totally to him. He said, the Ferguson, if you went to uh, Alec Ferguson and said, this is what I think we should be doing, and explained it to him, and he accepted it, immediately he said, right, go and do it. Hmm. And being Manchester United, 90 times out of 100, it would work. Hmm. But now again, it wouldn't work. He said, he never ever came back to you and said, that was a crap idea. Aye. He never said that. Mm. And Willenstein actually approached him and said one time, said, well, kind of that idea I mean didn't work. And he said, yeah, but that's no problem. He says, I bought in here. Yeah. It's my problem. It's not your problem. I'm the gaffer. You came to me. I thought it was a great idea. And I backed you on it. We were wrong. We move on. Brilliant. But it wasn't like shouting him, that was some you know, bloody blind dear, you yeah. brought me. And Milnstein says, that whole thing permeated through the club. So then you become very open to going to the manager and say, why don't we do this? And why do, I mean, it's, it's funny things, because Fergie uh, would be looked upon as the old style manager, you know. Yeah. But Manchester United had things like, particularly in McLaren, you know, when McLaren was coming to Ferguson saying, I think every player should have his own bed. Why? Yeah. Because they were bladdy, 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 blah, right, buy everybody their own bed. Yeah. Now, the the, the, the stereotype of the old time Scotland manager would say, bitch, I'm going bitch, I'll get 100 grand a week, and we're bearing a bit, you know. He said, no, that's a good thing. There was another thing about chairs, relaxation in Carrington, having these certain, you know, air, you know what's the word for it, uh, ergonomic uh, chairs. And uh, I think it was McLaren again that brought that to him and said, um, mind, you know, right, okay, let's do it. Yeah. 
So that's the main openness. And, but everybody, of course, always knew who the box was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's an incredible, you're, you're right, everyone knew who the boss was. But once you, everyone had that, the, the coaches would have that. That would give them incredible confidence to come yeah. up with ideas, isn't it? Yeah. Come up with ideas as a whole. You yeah. know, that, that's just it. brilliant. See if we go on to the, almost the, the, the change in terms of how it might negatively affect a coach. How, how might you think the change in society or the change in the type of player that now comes into addressing them, how might that affect how a coach communicates now? Well, so ben, communication is much, much more difficult. As you know, I was called dressing rooms Darwinian. Is <clears throat> is primal? Is is? I always laugh about people talk about the glamour of being a football. And there is glamour, you know. And yeah. the, you know, you, uh, there's obviously. Uh, I always love the great line, uh, the comfy Peter Crouch. What What would you be if you hadn't been a football? And he said, a virgin. Uh, uh, so there's, um, you know, there's great glamour with you know women. There's great yeah. glamour <clears throat> with money, material things. But it's the most elite sport is the most brutal system ever because you are getting judged every day. Yeah. Your performance every moment is being monitored. Mm-hmm. And while you're doing that, there's a there's a rush of people wanting to take your place. Please. And every year, ruthlessly, you'll be recycled. Now you might be recycled up the chain. You might just hold on to your position and no more. Mm-hmm. Or you can recycle right out of it, uh, and uh, and it happens very, very dramatically. And so there's no surprise that there's you know these great mental health issues amongst players. Mm. And Don, there must always have been these things. This yeah. is not a modern yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. The recognition of it is. Yeah. But what I talk to very good, <clears throat> excuse me, managers, good people. And I'll not name their names because it's yeah. it, it, there's still been stuff in confidence. Yeah. And these people are good people. They're not bullies or yeah. uh, they're good human beings. And I talked to one in particular who said he had to come and completely moderate his language yeah. because he was in a dressing room and he was he was telling a player, you know, a big lump of a laddie, mm. you know, and he was kind of roaring at him. And he was saying, listen, you're getting bullied out there. You know, you're six foot two. You're only, you're the biggest 17-year-old I've seen you. He says, and I was trying to be positive about it as well. He says, you're six foot two. You've got everything in you. You've got skill. You've got strength. That's center halves. Really, you get in there and bully him back. You've got to win the battle to, you know, win the game and all that. And uh, and he says, I was very voluble. He says, but I never thought. I was over the score and all that. And, and, and he says, and I was using swear words in between it. Right? He says, but I never thought it was much of it. He says, but later I saw the guy with his head hanging down. And he said, um, what's the problem? And the guy, well, nobody's ever spoke to me like that in my life. I'm devastated. Yeah. Nobody spoke to me. Okay. And, and, and this guy is wise enough to say, well, that's just the way it is. You know, he's, you know, he's wise enough to take, well, yeah. You know, I've done something and I've got to address it. Yeah. Uh, and he had to address it and had to talk to the boy and he, he had to, to build the boy up and, and you know, and, and, and he said, but that was a complete sea change from, you know, the way 
not only was he brought up, but the way he in dressing rooms where he says, literally, he says, and I'm not absolving myself. What I was saying to that lad, he wasn't in the rant or tearing him a new one or a hairdryer. It was just quite sort of almost supportive. Again, you've got it. You can do this. Get him, bully him back. Don't let him bully you. He says, the voice was raised and there was industrial language. He said, but I, I realised then, you know, I've got, I really had to, this was a different thing, you know, I had to change my ways, um, uh, certainly with certain personalities. Yeah. I think that, uh, when you were speaking there, giving that example, I think in one of the the Brian Clough mm. films, isn't it, the, you know, the which Martin Sheen's in, they uh, do, a, they do a, a small part of that, and I'm mm. sure it's it, almost exactly the same terms, mm. you know, was used, and I'm sure Brian Clough's having a, a go at John O'Hare. Is it John mm. O'Hare that was that? The same form, no? Yeah, and, and it's almost like that, and, and if you're if you're thinking now, and I would echo what you're saying there, is, is how we use language as, mm. as a coach, or almost just how we use language between people mm. now, is, is we need to be far more aware on, it's not just our intention that counts, isn't it? Mm. It's how it does land on people. Yeah. Because... And it's not restricted to football. I mean, no, you go back to no. our previous career in... in, in, in um... Newspapers of the 70s and 80s, you know, people were crying at desks. Yeah. Crying. You know, there was, um, there was cases of physical violence in editorial rooms. There was certainly bullying. I mean, <clears throat> there were some editors who were just renowned for nothing else than their bullying. And certainly some uh, chief sub-editors and things, you know, because uh, it was a very macho, aggressive, um, industry uh, fueled and laced by alcohol as well yeah. and alcohol abuse, yeah. and 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 there was a different world and and yeah, people have had to change. Yeah. But the great managers change. Yeah. You know, the great managers. I mean, if you look at it, Fergie, you go back to Fergie. Oh, it's just as an example, yeah. appealing, but but it's just for simplicity of, of yeah. explaining an argument. Do you think Fergie's man management with Aberdeen in 1979 was the same as his man management with Manchester United in 2009? Yeah. Of course no, it wasn't. Yeah. Of course it wasn't. You, you know, uh, do you think he has, uh, um, he would still have the same principles, but the way he expressed them and the way he dealt with people has to be changed as society changes. You know, the, the, the best managers are just that. They're managers. They manage all circumstances and, and, and all forces uh, that are coming. And it has completely changed. There's no doubt about it. And I think that's it has been a fascinating conversation, Hugh. And, and almost just to finish with, it's taking that a step further, how do you see or what's your thoughts mm -hmm. on how the game will develop, almost coming out of where we are in now, which we don't know how it's mm. going to kind of end, but will end this kind of lockdown. How do you see the game developing in terms of coaching and 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 how the game's played going forward? I think coaches will continue to evolve. They'll be part of the evolution because coaches at their heart are deep thinkers. You've worked with them all. Yeah. And they all have, whether they're intellectually bright, as in, you know, you know, could they, mm. could they add, add, you know, could they do great, you know, theses and that. Some of them can't, but they're, 
but generally all great coaches are very intellectually bright and curious and they have got something that they're always willing to change. Yeah. If something works, like, let's go for it. Why is that not? Why is this? Why is this sort of develop? <clears throat> so I think coaching will become more, um, more attuned to the individual player. I think the recruitment of players will change because we're seeing this already. You see it in Germany now. The Germany has schemes with Dortmund mm. where they're going into schools in Germany and they're picking up not what we would do in primary. You, you'll remember this mm. in primary yeah. one, two, and three. Who are the best players in the class? Yeah. They're not focusing so much on that. They're focusing on who's the most intelligent person in the class mm. because they believe that they can, um, they, can, they can develop the physical skills. But what they're more interested in is peripheral vision, yeah. problem solving, yeah. uh, the, ability to, uh, the ability to react quickly under pressure, the ability to see opportunities. There's a, there's a, there's a piece of, kind of um, training software which is about lights shining yeah. and you have to hit the ball quickly. Yeah. And a lot of German clubs are taking kids of six, seven, and eight in there. And they're not looking at the accuracy so much of the way they hit the light with the ball. They're looking at the reactive element of the kid, how quick they see the light. Because yeah. they think they can work on delivering the ball, the kid's ability to deliver the ball to that light. But if the kid already sees that light before anybody else in the room, mm -hmm. They, they pick him out and, and they take him away. So it's going to become more scientific. Football generally is going to go two ways. Um, well, it's going to go one way, I think. There's going to be a huge elite, which will be almost like a world league. Mm. And it's going to be like um, televised all over the world. Games in China, India, Brazil, franchises all over the world. And domestic football will just be at best a feeder for that. Or yeah. in most cases, a very poor substitute for it. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, you. That's fascinating there as well, as you can see the continued development. And, and it's interesting how the top clubs, as you were saying there, are mm. learning and developing from other sports. As yeah. Worked in motorsport, I've seen that reaction lights, mm. you know, work with the, the drivers um, before. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's great how the top countries are or top clubs are, are learning from other sports as well. And, and as, the, as the sport continues to develop, um, it'll be interesting to see where uh, it, Absolutely, where it because it's a revolution, Don, because you yeah. know that all recruitment was always based on how good are you are at the ball. It seems yeah. so obvious. Yeah. You know, they would go into a class of six years and go, oh, he's the best player in the class, and then they would just yeah. say the rest of them weren't. Now they're going, no, no, no. We can actually make them good with the ball. What we can give them is sporting intelligence. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. It is, and it, uh, certainly what I know a lot of clubs look for is you're developing that independent decision maker on the yeah. park as early as you can. Yep. You know, that bit of creativity, that mm. bit of, with the fundamental, as you said, you can teach the fundamental skills. And you can get everybody, just about everybody as well, unless they've got, you know, unless they've got an issue. Yeah. You can get just about everybody fit. You can get yeah. everybody to a level, if they work at it and they buy into it and you've got the best, you know, physical program, 
everybody will reach a level that will make them competitive. Yeah. You know, you can do that. You can, you know, you can put that in. But what you can do is, is, is give two things, you know, that commitment, which people have to have. All elite sportsmen share that, sportswomen. Yeah. And that problem-solving thing, that quickness of thought, yeah, that's brilliant. Well, thanks very much for your time, Hugh. That was well, great to talk to you as always. Yeah. If if people want to go and look at your um, interviews now, where where would they find them? Mostly, mostly on the Daily Mail website now. Uh, there are a lot of old ones on the Herald website as well. Um, um, so I do a do a, a double page spread in the the Daily Mail every Saturday and interview. And I, I used to do it with the Herald, and I also do book reviews still for the Herald. Oh. Brilliant. So I had a, a nice weekend here of uh, writing up um, uh, uh, an interview with John Yogi Hughes, the, oh. the original John Yogi Hughes, the, the hero of the Leeds game in 1970, yeah. and a review of a biography of Nick Cave. So oh. it's a, a nice wee stretch. Oh. And this is just an aside, you know, <clears> the Nick Cave one. Maybe I mentioned to you that I watched a, do um, a documentary on him and I've used what he said in football. And someone asked him, why was he so prolific writing? Mm. And he said, I'm not, I'm not bothered where the first line takes me. Uh, it's just getting that first line down. He's got, he's got a great attitude as well um, to his art. And uh, he's one of these people who decides that what he says is, I put my clothes on, I dress up for it, and I go to my work and I do my work, and if it's great, it's great, and if it's not, it's not. And I really agree with that. Yeah. This idea of waiting for the news. Yeah, news. Yeah, it's an anathema to me. I just say, see when the news, news does hit, you've got to be ready. You've got uh, to be sitting there with your pen in your hand or your laptop open, or in caves, find the microphone in his hand. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not a man who, who believes in idly sitting about waiting for inspiration. Yeah, that's brilliant, brilliant. So thanks again, Hugh, I really appreciate it. I, thanks okay. again, Hugh, it's great to see you again, Don. All the best. Okay. Cheers, Hugh. Cheers.